Hey everyone, welcome back. Welcome to the Pillars Podcast. I am your host, Dylan Bowman, and it feels like it has been a while. I am so happy to be back and to get back on a regularly scheduled program now that Hard Rock is behind me. And today, that's all we're gonna talk about. Today is all about Hard Rock. The recap of the race, as you probably already know, it went very, very well for me, better than I could have ever imagined. It was a true highlight of my life and career, and I wanted to share the story with you all in detail. And to help me tell the story today, I have enlisted my big brother, himself a former guest of the podcast, Mr. Jason Bowman, is here to interview me. Those who have been around the show for a while know him well, but though he is not a runner himself, Jason has been a very active fan and follower of the sport since I got involved more than a decade ago. So he knows a lot. Uh, He knows me very well. He's got a great soothing voice for radio. And I think he did a great job guiding our conversation today. Not much else to say right now. I have some pretty big updates coming in the next couple of episodes, but for now, let's get to it. The Hard Rock 100 recap episode featuring my big brother, Jason Bowman. Let's go. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Pillars Podcast. This is Jason Bowman. Uh, You heard that right. We have something a little different for you on today's installment. I'm going to interview uh, the legend and the mainstay of the ultra running community and my brother, Dylan Bowman, about his race at Hard Rock last weekend and, um, you know, his his general heroicness. And um, I also hope to, you know, as a person who's deathly averted to the act of running, glean some insight about the how and the what and the why that animates this sport that I love so much, but uh, understand so very little so yeah, Dylan, welcome to your own show. <laughs> J-Bo, what an honor. How are you? Look at this, man. You get to navel gaze about myself on my own show. <laughs> a little bit awkward, but this is so fun, man. And you and I uh, have only scratched the surface. Usually we have longer debriefs after my races and we haven't had to have that yet. Or we, ha- we haven't had an opportunity to do that yet. So here we well, are. This, this, is, is, this is the best way to do it. You're in a hotel room still somewhere on the road on your way back home from the race. I'm sitting here in my my comfortable uh, smoking chair <laughs> in San Francisco. But yeah, what a treat and what an honor. And I'm, I'm so excited to, to get the full debrief and also to prod you with some, some hard questions, hopefully. Um, so, you know, 100 mile race in the San Juans of Colorado, average elevation is 11,000 feet above sea level, 33,000 feet of total climbing starting at 6 a.m., running for 22 hours and 45 minutes to finish at 345 the next morning. Dear Lord. 445, 445. 445, excuse me. So we'll get to some background and and foreground and aftermath of the race, but I want to start with something a little more high level here. The, uh, The day before the race, you posted a caption on Instagram that said, suffering is a gift exclamation point suffering is a gift (laughs) ready to find the bottom of the well tomorrow 
So, you know, obviously describing an undertaking so intense and fundamental and superhuman is, is quite difficult, but I want to, you know, prod you a little as a gateway into that to, to unpack that statement a little bit. Um, what do you mean suffering is a gift? Did you suffer? And what does it mean to find the bottom of the well? Suffering. Just been an easy one, actually, right at the start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No warm-up, no warm-up. <laughs> yes, dude. I mean, like, I don't know. I think you and I share similar just passion, enthusiasm, and emotional disposition. And I am possessed with a deep love for the sport that I have fallen into and that has shaped the last 12 years of my life. And hard rock has always been a big goal of mine. It's always been a race that I've wanted to do. It's always been at the top of the bucket list. And I'm sure we'll go into this later, but it took a long freaking time for me to get to the point where I was the day before the race. And as ultra runners know, the day before the race, you can have a lot of anxiety. You can have a lack of self-confidence. You can second guess your preparation. You can feel very intimidated with the challenge ahead. And sometimes, and it hasn't happened often in my career, I arrive at that moment just totally fucking ready. And that's how I felt this year, you know, just like, knew it was going to be so hard, knew it was going to be the longest, hardest race of my career and having zero intimidation about it, having nothing but pure unadulterated excitement for the pain that was ahead. And I think (laughs) sometimes it's hard to see the gift in the suffering. And so that was what I wanted to just kind of share publicly for those who maybe were not feeling the way that I was uh, to remind them that the suffering is the gift and uh, that, yeah, finding the bottom of the well is what these, these races are for. And I uh, was happy to keep that attitude for the entirety of the race and uh, quite confident that I did find the bottom of the well. So yeah, it was so uh, the exploration is like, is the desire to get deeper into the bottom of this, this kind of proverbial well, one of the things that, that obviously it gets you, gets you motivated to prepare just to mitigate your destruction. But is it something that in the middle of the race, you're actually cognizant of, where you're actually like, oh, wow, like I am getting towards the bottom of the well and this is why I'm here and this fucking sucks, but also like I'm going to get so much out of this or is it or I'm already getting so much out of this? Is it present in the moment? Yeah, so I had two goals, strategies going into the race and we can talk about this in more detail, but the first one was to run the downhills very easy and the second one was to stay engaged the whole race mentally, because I knew I, at least I thought it was going to be at least 24 hours and I had never gone longer than 20 hours. Ultimately it was 22 hours and 45 minutes. And I know that you can go hours sometimes where you're so just not mentally engaged and, or not, finding the gift in the suffering and instead just being sad, 
being kind of, yeah, wondering why you'd signed up for this stupid thing in the first place. And so for me, front of mind at all times was stay engaged mentally. And that's never something that I've tried to remind myself to do. And actually it was Hal Kerner's race report from the Hard Rock 100 2012. I read it in the days leading up to the race where he said something similar about that being his goal for the race. And I thought, that's going to be my goal too. And so throughout the event, from the first couple miles, the first couple climbs, all the way through where I was stumbling and falling down because I was so bonky and then recovering and making it to the finish line throughout all of that, I kept reminding myself, stay engaged here, stay engaged, enjoy this, be present with this. And I think ultimately that helped me move a little bit more quickly, but yeah, I mean, you do know when you're at your maximum capacity, you do know, and you know, when you are scratching at the bottom of the well and, uh, yeah, I uh, certainly was was suffering myself at the end and was just trying to maintain that attitude the whole way. Yeah, that's so cool. And I actually like in such an unrelatable sport, as I said, that's actually something that I can relate to and something that we talked about before on the podcast we did about the the meditation treats, because that's something that I I also try to do on these long 10 day sits is like, yeah, stay yeah, engaged is a good way to do it, but also to one of the things that I do, especially when I'm when I'm deep in the the depths of suffering on a long sit, is I kind of say this thing to myself or to something that is I'm right here, and it's a weird thing where it's like I don't even know who I'm addressing it to, but it's like this sucks. I don't want to be where I am right now, but I'm right here, and it's almost like I'm telling whatever whatever voice or whatever thing is trying to get at me into that point like hey i'm right here i'm not going anywhere like please show yourself and that's such an interesting way to think about how to deal with the the physical uh demand of what you're doing and i want to get into that a little bit more too but i want to go back to just what you said about your kind of attitude going into the race um i think one of the things that i'm aware of that maybe your fans or listeners aren't so much is just the way that I can kind of tell how your state of mind is going into the races. Um, always over the last however many years that you've been doing it, you seem to um, have like a very interesting relationship between your your mental state and your performance. It seems the way you feel mentally going into the race has a lot to do with how you perform. And that's, that's really fascinating to me. And I'm kind of thinking about it in two different ways. And I guess my question is, do you think that that is like a sixth, that sixth sense um, that you have of sorts? Like you can already tell how the race is going to go and that's why your attitude is at, as it is. Or do you think that it, it fulfills itself? Like, like your attitude going into the race dictates how you actually race. This is such a great question. So, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot. So yes, I can almost always tell before a race, how it's going to go just based on my attitude and my feelings in the days and weeks leading into it. Not even necessarily how training has gone. It's sort of a mind state that you can only really identify as you 
gain proximity to the event itself. And I have been in the sport for a long time now. I've done a lot of long, hard races. And when I race my best, it is always when I get to the start line, feeling like I can't wait to put myself through something. And this goes back to what we started the conversation with and the suffering being the gift. And oftentimes, if you've done a lot of really hard training, you arrive at the start line with a feeling of like, man, I don't really want to put myself through this again. I've already pressed this button so many times in training, like this is going to really hurt. And I don't really feel like hurting again. And for me, the races that I can look back to and point at and say, I actually fulfilled my potential on the day are the races where I stood at the start line and couldn't fucking wait to get through it or to put myself through what I knew it was going to take to get to the finish line. And hard rock, there's actually pictures of me at the start line, uh, sort of with my hands together in prayer position and I don't even remember that, but it's a, a beautiful capture of what was internal at the, at that point of just like, I am so happy to be here. Like, this is my shot and I'm going to make the most of it. And even though I felt like I was really ready to have a good day, the other important thing was there was nothing that was going to fucking stop me from getting to the finish line, no matter what. And I had this conversation with Harmony and the crew and the Pacers beforehand of like, hey, just so you guys know, if it goes sideways, I'm going and like, I am going to make it to the finish line. So be prepared because it could take a while. And I think that's also when things go well, when you're ready for that too, when you know that it's going to be hard and that you're not going to give yourself any excuse to quit. And when that's taken off the table, right, it frees up this energy, I think, that we have internally to where we can actually race to our potential. Now, the hardest thing, though, is to figure out how to make that happen consistently. Because when we have these perfect races, when we do feel like we couldn't have run any faster on the day, and that we fulfilled our potential, to understand that that's a precious thing and that when it happens, you don't have everything figured out that you have benefited from some, some, I don't know, conspiracy of the universe to put you in the right place at the right time with all the factors that you can't control falling in your direction. And then approaching the next one with a similar humility and hopefully trying to get back to the start line with the things that you can control with that same feeling of gratitude and that same level of determination to get through it no matter what. Yeah. So cool. And you know, I, this whole attitude of, um, or impulse or inspiration to quote, put yourself through something is something that I, I really want to try to continue to unpack um, because it is, it's like, I guess a simple question is, do you ever wonder, like, is this totally neurotic that I want to put myself through this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think definitely the, 
the reason why I've always wanted to be like a pro athlete is born out of some deep insecurity, you know, <laughs> something from our childhood where I don't know. I, I mean, it's always been my thing, as you know, like I've always been like the good athlete. Right. And, and ultra running is inherently like a whack job sport that is not necessarily good for you, but dude, it changes people. Like it, I fully believe, and I, it's probably hyperbolic. And this is one of the reasons why I want to devote my life to moving this sport forward is the sport changes people's lives and it can change the whole world, I think. And so and it's because of what you're asking about putting ourselves through things. And people don't do that very much. The average person doesn't do it. You and I know a lot of people who are excited to put them, their, themselves through things. But the mm -hmm. average person does not want to do that to their detriment. Because it's in those moments where we change. And that's why I love doing what I do is like, I am ne I've never stopped learning. You never stop growing. The practice changes with you as you age, as you go through injury, as you gain new experiences and relationships, it's a constant ever evolving thing. But the one thing that's constant is that it's always like helping you move forward mm -hmm. in your life. And so, you know, that's what I mean by like putting yourself through things is like constantly just like, pushing yourself to, to, you know, not be stuck in inertia to not be like just okay. And grasping for whatever is, is constant and desirable and comfortable, but to constantly be putting yourself out there and to occasionally go to the bottom of the well and find out. And if you fail, you fail and learn. And if it goes perfectly, you have a small moment of pure elation. And then you go back and you learn and you continue to grow and evolve. So, yeah. Yeah. And that harkens back to the, even the whole like suffering is a gift thing, because one of the things that you and I share, of course, is the gift of, of a certain degree of comfort that allows us to uh, take control over the ways that we choose to suffer and to quote, put ourselves through things. And that is something that is, that is quite a privilege and something that, um, many people in the, in the ultra community, many people in the meditation community, et cetera, share is this, this, um, bandwidth to be able to take time away from a relatively comfortable existence in order to explore discomfort in a way that is is not universally shared, of course. But yeah, getting back to, I mean, you had a great race. Um, and that's something again, like, cause so I talked to Dylan before all, all of these races, of course, like multiple times and, and right afterwards. And I can too, like pretty much immediately in hearing how he's speaking, um, either be like, this is going to be a, a good race or this is going to be horrible. And usually I have like an interesting sense of FOMO because if, cause I was not at hard rock and I couldn't make it happen this year. And I talked to him and he sounded amazing. And he was like, so I knew he was going to have a good race, but then I was pissed because I wasn't going to be there. <laughs> but then if I talk to him and he sounds horrible, then I'm like, Oh, thank God. I'm not there. I don't want to have to go through this <laughs> anyway. Um, but so, so give us some of the, um, 
of the background. I mean, first of all, you've been trying to get into the race for a number of years. Um, and then you won the lottery, what, three years ago? Yeah, December of 2018. So two and a half years ago. And then that was the year that it was canceled for what happened next. So I got pulled in the lottery of December of 2018 and then immediately fell into my personal crisis, which you know all about and that I've talked about a lot on the podcast uh, and that was highlighted really by the fracture of my left ankle in April of 2019. I was lucky that year that Hard Rock was canceled because there was a historic snow year in the state of Colorado. There was crazy avalanche activity throughout the spring that pretty much destroyed the Hard Rock course and they were unable to put it together in time for the race. So they canceled it in 2019. Of course, we all know 2020, everything was canceled for the coronavirus. So it was a two and a half year wait from the time that I got pulled in the lottery to the time when I ultimately stood on the start line. And so we, I want to talk about preparation and I know you did a lot of preparation, including some of these uh, FKT attempts that were wildly successful in the last several months. And then you were up in mammoth for what, two months, six weeks, six weeks to get some elevation training. So clearly there's a very methodical and scientific and well thought out progression of this, but I guess I wonder if you can give us a couple bullet points about what you're thinking about in terms of managing this kind of balance between uh, getting really fit, but also not wanting to fatigue yourself along the way and how you manage those two things, how you toe that line. This is perfectly asked question, Jason, because I think my preparation for hard rock really couldn't have been better for the last seven months, really, since the the beginning of the year. And if you look at all my training, I put everything on Strava. I am, have always been a moderate level trainer. I've never been somebody that puts up crazy volume that does ridiculous workouts that owns all the FKTs and CRs on Strava. I'm somebody who hits singles and doubles every day in training. Plus I have a ton of experience. Wait, what's a single and a double? I'm using a baseball metaphor to describe the Uh, fact that instead of swinging for the fences and hitting home runs and training, I'm just a consistent guy who puts the ball in play, you know? And so if you look at sort of what I did to build up towards hard rock in the spring, I went and did the Joshua tree FKT, which I think was about 35 or 37 miles. I'd have to go back and look but that was a great sort of early season rev of the engine, an opportunity to just go hard for, I think it was four hours and 15 minutes or something like that. So sort of like a 50 K race intensity, knock the rust off. And for me, that's how I've always done my best is to like shock the system with like a really hard effort and then recover and get back to training and shock the system, recover, train, and just slowly sort of ramp my way up into true like race, race fitness. And so after Joshua Tree, a couple months later, I did the Backbone Trail. Both of these we've documented on YouTube and we can put the links in the show notes. 
Um, and the backbone trail was specifically placed when we did it. I think it was nine or 10 weeks before hard rock as sort of my big shock of the system prior to the final preparation in mammoth where we did our sort of altitude training camp right before heading to the san juans and the backbone trail also was great rev the engine super hard there in fact felt really terrible afterwards and was a little bit nervous about hard rock. Uh, but I think in retrospect, it was exactly what I needed. I went deep, deep, deep to the well, made some mistakes that I learned from, but also got that shock to the system, that rev of the engine, that race simulation, and that deep fitness and strength from putting yourself through 67 miles so that ultimately I could get to Silverton feeling confident that I could cover the distance and that I had the fitness to compete also. So then after backbone, a few weeks later, we went to mammoth. And if you look at my Strava again, it's nothing crazy, man. It's like singles and doubles with a handful of huge days. I did three, uh, three days sort of mini training camp. Again, this is also documented on YouTube, uh, which I think was the crux, the biggest uh, positive uh, and most intelligent thing that I did in training was that three-day training camp. I did that right before Western States, where I then, of course, went and sat in Put a chair. Forth the biggest ultra effort of <laughs> media ever. Yeah, but it was great. And I did that specifically. I did the three-day training camp right before uh, Western States specifically so that I knew that I would get there feeling ready to sit in a chair and talk for days on end. Uh, so that, I think the timing, the sequencing of that was really intelligent as well. It gave me a little bit of time to recover there at Western States. And then after Western, we're only three weeks before hard rock at this point and just put a couple more sort of higher altitude, sort of four hour efforts in before the training pretty much wrapped up and we tapered. Um, but you, the question about fitness, how long versus, did you taper for probably about two weeks, about two weeks. And what does that exactly entail? So I think the most, most interesting thing on this front is in line with your question about fitness versus freshness. And this is always something that I've thought about because again, I want to arrive at the start line ready to put myself through something, not fatigued in any way. And actually I did a lot of reading of race reports, listening to past podcasts, watching I run far interviews and talking to people who'd performed well at hard rock before the race, as I always do. I like to do homework like that. I think it helps to understand the challenge ahead and also gives you some really valuable pieces of information and insights from the athletes who've been able to perform well in the years ahead of you. And one of the themes that I noticed between uh, Hal Kerner, Adam Campbell, and Jason Schlarb all independently said that they arrived feeling really rested and really fresh. And of course, after the three-day training camp in Western States and then going into my taper, I was starting to feel really fresh. But as we all do sometimes, we get a little bit self-conscious about maybe I'm not doing enough. And when we left Mammoth and went to Telluride, 
where we spent a few days before heading to Silverton. My plan was the Sunday before Hard Rock was to do sort of like another three, four hour day out in the mountains um, as my last training outing. And so what I did was I went up Virginia's Pass from Telluride on the Hard Rock course. And I just felt it, man. I just had the energy. I felt fit. I felt great at altitude. And I was starting to feel really fresh. And when I got to the top of the pass, rather than continuing on and doing a longer run, I said, no, dude, I am done. I'm done. And I just jogged back down into Telluride. The wisdom of old age. Exactly. So, but then (laughs) dude, for five days before the race, I did basically nothing. I went on two 30 minute jogs in the five days before the race. And what that meant was by the time I got up on Friday morning and walked to the start line, I was desperate to get the hell out of the Airbnb and go (laughs) put myself through something. So anyway, I think it's just a, it's a really important thing to highlight of just like how important it was for me to go in rested and going in feeling really fresh. Yeah. And, and then, so that's, that seems, that's all so interesting. Um, And it seems like it's also 50% of the equation too, because of what we just talked about it, about how important the mental aspect is and the attitude and the willingness and the, the, because when it comes down to it, the endurance is such a, is such a cognitive thing. And it is the true understanding that no moment is itself unendurable and you just string together these moments. So then my next question is how do you prepare that? Like it's the, the mental state if someone tells you like, okay, four weeks from now, you need to have a good attitude. There's, there's a certain (laughs) training that has to go into that too. Right. Because your attitude, like your fitness is very much an emergent quality. When you're trying to get fit, you put together these different ingredients in very specific ways and all the, in all the ways you just laid out so nicely. And those things come together to create something more than the sum of their parts, which is your cardiovascular fitness. Yeah. Now the, the attitude fitness, I think in my experience works in the same way where, you know, you want to, you want to be in harmonious situations. You want to be having the right conversations with people that don't grade at you. You want to be consuming the right kind of art and media and TV and books or whatever you want to be, um, spending your time in a way that again, becomes these kind of ingredients that fall together to create something more than the sum of their parts, which in this case is like an attitude that can get you through a 22 hour and 45 minute effort like this. So speak to that. So I think sometimes having a good attitude comes easily depending on our circumstances in life, what we're going through, how we're feeling about the activities that we're pursuing. And it was very easy for me to have a good attitude going into hard rock. I was possessed with a gratitude, unlike anything I'd ever experienced in the sport to in my history. And the as you know, to kind of reemphasize things that we've already talked about is like, that's when I perform at my best is when I am just possessed with a love of the practice and not feeling the intimidation or a dread for the inevitable 
pain that's going to come. And so for me in this particular training block, the attitude thing came easy. So it you, doesn't, weren't, you weren't training for the attitude like I, you sometimes find yourself doing. I wasn't training for the attitude. I mean, I was doing what I always do, which is do my daily meditations, do a lot of reading outside of sport to kind of keep my brain engaged and where I don't just kind of stay possessed uh, about the singular goal that I have in mind. Um, and, but I think a, a, a good uh, illustration of where my mind was at relative to where it can sometimes go, and I think a lot of people who are listening to this will identify with it, is during the 22 hours and 45 minutes I was out on the trail, I felt like I didn't look at my watch at all, you know? And sometimes, whether it's in training, in workouts, all you do is just like, you look at your watch every 10 seconds. You're like, okay, how far have I gone? How far is the next aid station? How fast am I moving? And you, for, you, you lose the magic of the process. And at Hard Rock, I don't know, it, it only occurred to me after the fact, it was just like, I didn't look at my watch almost at all. And I think that's just illustrative of the fact that I did stay engaged. You know, I kept my brain focused on the mile that I was running. I wasn't thinking about how far is the next aid station. I wasn't thinking about how far ahead is Francois. I mean, I was when I got those updates, but I think actually another good sort of anecdote from the race itself was there was a moment where I really did struggle near the end where I was getting very bonky. I was unable to really eat a lot. And I asked Tyler who was running with me, Hey, do you know what's going on behind me? And that was a signal of vulnerability, right? That was a signal of not a good attitude and, and not being engaged. And Tyler, to his credit, said, dude, don't worry about what's happening behind you. Worry about this mile that you're running right now. Francois is not that far ahead. Like, focus on what you're doing. And so just that, that uh, little reminder from Tyler was really valuable for me. But I just, I think the example of the fact that I was just not looking at my watch, I think is a, a good illustration of what it means to actually stay engaged. Yeah, that's so cool. And it's something that is, is totally uh, relatable and congruent to meditation too, because yeah, looking at the it's clock. the same thing. <laughs> the time only passes when you're not focused on it. And if you're focused on your, your current sensations and whatever is currently arising, then time just flies by in the background. But if you're looking at the clock, those hours and those days take forever. To, to crawl by. So you mentioned the pacers and I want to get into that. But before we do the, um, I guess the question is like, why hard rock? What is hard rock? Let's hear about it. You know, can you articulate the difference in hard rock, both with the, the terrain, um, the exposure, the weather, the ambiance, the ratio of running to hiking as compared to other hundreds? What's, what's the deal with this race? Hard rock is the race. It is the coolest event I've ever done in my life. And that's not to say that, you know, I haven't enjoyed other races that I've done because I, I have, and I, uh, love other, you know, big hundred milers as well, um, for what they provide. But I think this was 
because it went so well and because I've been looking forward to it for such a long time and because we got really good conditions and because we're still only what five days removed from the race, this is just my feeling right now, but it's such an incredible event. And obviously it's incredibly difficult for people to get into. It took me, I think I missed on the lottery six or seven times before I finally got in uh, I've been at the race five, six, seven times over the course of the last decade. I had my first experience as a pacer at Hard Rock back in 2011 with Joe Grant. And uh, that's actually worthy of another story too, because Joe and I had an amazing exchange out on the course. Um, but it's incredibly hard. It's the hardest race I've ever done. It's like UTMB, but much higher elevation and much more technical. And so therefore much slower. So I think Francois ran almost three hours slower on the hard rock course than he did on the UTMB course. And yeah, it's a very slow going affair. Average altitude is 11,000 feet, which is a huge challenge in and of itself and something that requires a lot of preparation and discipline during the race execution. But it also, beyond the X's and O's, has this feeling to it that I've never experienced. And I wish you would have come this year. And if I ever get in again, you've got to come. Or you should just come next year either way, because we're going back no matter what. But I'll pace you from you know the highway to the gas station. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> but it really is, you know, that the what everybody talks about is the hard rock family. And if you're a finisher, if you're part of the event, if you're a volunteer, you become part of this family. And that's very much how I felt. And it was something that I was jealous of that I wanted to be part of, you know, and I think the race does get some criticism about it being like a family, you know, it's a small tight knit group. It's really hard to get in, you know, it feels like an exclusive thing. But for those who put their time in the sport, for those who are committed, who love what they do, and who have that long-term goal, you will get in. It, it might take you a long time to do it, but it's worth it. You have to continue to get those qualifiers. And once you have that opportunity, it's a precious thing. And it was so special for me. And it felt not only like the most beautiful, hardest, most rewarding race experience of my life, but it was also just it's a really cool feeling around the town of Silverton, the way they approach it being more of a run than a race. I mean, the race director doesn't use the term winner. You know, when he called up Francois and Sabrina Stanley at the award ceremony, he says the first male finisher and the first female finisher, not the champion, not the winner. It's the first finisher. And they celebrate everybody who gets across the finish line equally. You know, there's no pageantry of a podium where people are standing together and getting their pictures taken and holding supersized checks or something like that. So it's a really special event. It's difficult to, to describe, but for me, it was a highlight of my life, definitely a highlight of my career. And, uh, I really hope I have the honor of doing it again. And, and so the difficulty though is the community is such a wonderful thing and i and i've seen that at so many other races i've been to and it sounds like that is just um 
you know, given in spades at, at hard rock. And that's beautiful. But back to the difficulty of it, I think one of the things, because I've, you know, spectated this race, particularly, of course, on the internet over the years as well. And one thing that sticks out to me is, well, first of all, you're above tree line for so much of the race. So you're so exposed. But it seems like there's also a pretty consistent deal of extreme weather at this race where suddenly the sky will open up and you're getting hailed on and you're at the top of a 13, 14,000 foot mountain. And suddenly there's a th you know, thunderstorm. Did you guys get any gnarly weather and how much does that play into your, your race strategy or how do you deal with it when it arises? Yeah. So this is also a good little visual into the race itself. So overall we had probably the most favorable weather conditions you could ask for at hard rock, which I think contributed to us going fast, but we did experience weather going up the backside of handies. This is roughly 35 miles into the race or so. And handies peak is the high point of the course. You go over 14,000 feet. Francois had about five minutes on me at this time. And it just started pouring like a freezing high altitude above tree line rain. I pulled my jacket out, you know, hood up, zipped up, contemplated getting my gloves out because my hands were frozen. And this has lasted for 30 or 40 minutes. But like I said, Francois was only a few minutes ahead and we're above tree line. So I could see him the whole way to the summit and he's just getting poured on and he doesn't have a jacket with him. So he's marching up handies in a t-shirt in a freezing rainstorm at like 13, five, you know, making his way to the summit. And I was like, this is his critical mistake. This is where Francois is going to screw up and I might be able to take advantage of it. <laughs> and so there's actually, so anyway, I, I get to the summit basically right when I got to the summit, it opened up and was sunny again. So I took my jacket off literally standing on the summit and started the awesome downhill to grouse gulch. But there's a cool exchange that was caught on video because Francois being the gentleman that he is waited for me at the finish line to welcome me and congratulate me. And we have a, a fun little exchange that was caught on video. But the first thing I say to him is, bro, did you get cold on Handy's Peak? Because I felt like, oh, this, he screwed up. Like right. he, he's going to be cold. Like, and this is, he's going to be working hard to stay warm and to get over the top of this mountain. And if I can just, you know, stay a little bit warmer and stay just as close to him, eventually he's going to pay the piper for this extra effort. Unfortunately, it didn't happen, but that, that's what was going through my brain. And so what did he say? Did he get cold? He said, ah, yes, yes, I got cold. <laughs> <laughs> and just the context is the elevation of Handys is 14,000 and some feet, right? Yeah, just over 14. You guys are absolutely sick. Yeah. That is insane. So then what is what is the ratio to running to hiking? Because you look at the elevation profile of yeah. this race and it's really just like a sawtooth. It's straight up and straight down. How much are you actually running? Jogging? I mean, effectively, you basically just walk all the uphills, run all the downhills. I mean, that's, it's as simple as that. Basically, if there's moments where you can break into a quick jog on the climbs you do, uh, but for the most part, it's all about hiking quickly. And, uh, I felt like I did that really well. I felt like, uh, all my climbs were, were pretty strong with the exception of the one out of Ure up to Virginia's pass. That was my low point of the day, but, um, overall, yeah, it's a, it's, you have to be a decent hiker to get through this race. I mean, it's just a slow, slow going event. And so yeah. you have to be efficient with your 
energy expenditure. And if you try and jog, you might be going a little bit quicker, but you're at 12, 13,000 feet. Like it's for, for the extra energy, it's likely not worth it. And especially as you get later in the race, it's just not even, it's not I even wonder, Cause Francois is also a pretty tall guy, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. We're about the same size. And I wonder if that's actually a, an advantage in this type of race. Cause the long stride on those uphills, obviously you're just taking fewer steps going uphill. So I guess that leads me to another question. Cause my, um, but you're also you know, heavier, you're also bigger, heavier person. True. So. so my, my frame of reference for endurance sport is, is cycling, which I'm super into both as a fan and as a participant. And in cycling, of course, there's, there's, um, you know, very different and distinct types of athletes. There's guys that are good at short, punchy, repetitive efforts, guys who are good at long and sustained efforts, guys who are good at short bursts of, you know, sprinting after long days of, of grinding. Um, are there similar delineations of athletes in ultra running? A hundred percent. I mean, not only between like the 10 mile, like the, the distance effort, but like within a hundred mile, what are the delineations and types of runners? What is you, what is your greatest strength and skill set, and where do you find yourself the weakest? I'm going to answer two questions here. Number one, I just want to say Francois Dane is the mountain hundred miler of history. He is so freaking good. It's insane where Killian, it can, you know, do these crazy uphill time trials. He can win short distance golden trail series races and has incredible versatility. And of course is a three-time UTMB champion and four-time hard rock champion himself. Francois is a specialized mountain hundred mile runner, I think is the goat. And the last time he, his only competition is Killian, right? And the last time he and Killian raced, Francois beat Killian at UTMB 2017 in what was the most competitive hundred mile race of all time. So Francois Dane is the goat when it comes to my, of, of his specialty, right? Killian is also the goat of everything that he does. He goes up Everest. He's a, can climb like a real alpinist. He can do uphill like time goat, trials. Yeah. He can run like a fast, flat half marathon. Anyway, Francois, for his specialization, he is just so good. And he's also an incredibly gracious, humble champion. Um, to your question about sort of my strengths in 100-mile races, I think my strengths is, is more, yeah, being able to climb well at the end of races, typically. That's always sort of when I've been able to when it goes well, sort of separate myself from the field or make up time is on the, the climbs at the end of races. And this actually goes to what I mentioned earlier and that I had two strategies in the race. One was to run all the downhills easy because I really wanted to be able to climb well late in the race. And if you look at the course profile in the counterclockwise direction, which we ran it in this year, you see that at the end, you just have these four huge climbs. And so I knew that that was going to be a crux and that I wanted to be able to run well on those last four climbs, really hike well on those last four climbs. And so in my mind, the best way to do that would be to save my legs on the descents and to just run every downhill, just a, a step slower than I would want to. So consciously like hold myself back a little bit on the descents. So, um, yeah, I think I, that would be my strength. And also just like, I don't know, man, I, I, 
I take pride in the fact that I don't know. I'm a competitor, man. I just, I've been this athlete my whole life and I just can, I like competing and I like sort of like put myself out there and I usually don't get down on myself, which might be a skill. And also like just having some versatility, right? Like I'm not the fastest flat runner. I'm not the best guy in the mountains, but I'm pretty good at both. I'm not like the best on technical terrain, but I'm pretty good. You know, I'm not the best 50 K runner, but I'm okay. I'm not the greatest <laughs> hundred mile runner, but I'm pretty good. You know, on my day I can compete. And, uh, so like a race, like hard rock on paper, you know, looking at my history in the sport wouldn't be the type of race where I would entertain the idea of running the third fastest time in history. So I don't know. That was surprising. I think it had a lot to do with the conditions and, and a good preparation and a really good attitude. Um, and just, yeah, good, good execution, good strategy. So I wonder, and you've mentioned a couple of times, like the, the dark moment of the race. And I wonder the, what the difference is like between the competitive miles versus the survival miles uh, between the miles where you're like happy and stoked to be out there and totally gay engaged and the miles where you're really just gritting to survive. Um, what was that? I, I have it written down here, that tweet that was so hilarious on oh, I run far that says, <laughs> and I quote, Dylan Bowman is second place through mile 82 Chapman Gulch plus 31 minutes. He sat down, drank two cups of Coke and threw up. As he left, he said he's doing his best, but he can't eat anymore. <laughs> so, you know, for people that aren't aware, what is bonking? Yeah. What does it feel like? What is it like to not be able to eat pragmatically? But then in kind of the more zoomed out sense, what, like, how do you deal with that? How do you keep moving when you can't get calories in? So to provide context to what was happening, I lost my ability to eat really around Telluride, which is mile 72 or so. And that tweet was from mile 82 at the next aid station. Wait, so by losing your ability to eat, does that mean you're just throwing up everything that you eat or that you're just so disgusted by the food you can't even try? Both basically. Yeah. So, I mean, even like drinking Coca-Cola, I was puking. Usually when you're can't eat anything else, you go to Coke, right? <laughs> so I had basically lost my ability to consume anything. And of course that's unsustainable for a long time. And also at altitude, I think it compounds things. It makes it harder to eat also, not only you know, being at altitude, but also being 70 or 80 miles into a race, both those things together make, uh, basically nothing appetizing. And so actually after I left that aid station from that, I run far tweet, you go up, I think it's a 2,800 foot climb up over Grant Swamp Pass, which was absolutely the low light of the race for me. <laughs> really, really miserable. And that's in the middle of the night. Middle of the night. I think it was probably two o'clock in the morning when we went over the pass. Wow. And then on the ensuing downhill, before you get to the next aid station, which is called KT, Tyler would uh, validate this, but I got very wobbly. Like I had no coordination and 
was falling all over the place. I fell probably like four or five times over the oh, course. Wait, of, sorry. Was this going up or down? Downhill. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's downhill. And then there's like sort of a traverse across to the aid station. The last like mile and a half, you're sort of like flattish, but it's a miserable trail. And I was totally stumbling, like had no coordination between my brain and my feet, like clearly bonking hard. And define bonking for us. Just, yeah, no energy and also just no coordination of my no motor, calories. My, yeah, no calories. And uh, so I said to Tyler, I said that when we get to KT, I need to sit there until I can eat something because otherwise I may not make it to the finish line. And this is about the time when I asked him what's going on behind me. Cause I, right. I finally, I felt like a little vulnerable there. Mm-hmm. And, um, did you lose time to Ryan Smith behind you there? I haven't done the analysis, but I don't, I don't think it was substantial, but I sat in that chair for probably seven or 10 minutes Oh wow! and, and, uh, drank some ginger ale, drank some soup, puked it all up into the trash can there. They offered me some fruit. This was the key, the key. Hmm. I ate two like halves of a banana. So a a banana basically. And then, (laughs) and then two orange wedges. And the guy at the aid station also made me a Turkey sandwich, which I walked out of the aid station with. And from there, you, I I got very cold, which is the reason why I was like, okay, I need to go. Cause I was freezing cold. Mm -hmm. And you cross a river there, which made me even colder but then you, you go up the last 2,600 foot climb up to the, you know, the final ascent on the course and the fruit saved me. You know, I had a bite or two of the sandwich that I had in my hand, but it was clear that that wasn't going to work. So I kind of spit it up and, um, got rid of it. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I, that fruit gave me a second wind. And so then at the final aid station up over the last climb and about a third of the way down the final descent, there's a final aid station. And I just grabbed a whole banana off the table and kept walking out of the aid station and, and ate the banana on the way down. But this is what I would do differently is, uh, and I think I had an awesome race, uh, but I had a long stretch where I couldn't eat anything. I, but I was still moving well, which was important. And I knew that I was still moving well. Um, but so it wasn't as if like I was totally in the pain cave and barely moving. Like I was still managing to keep a respectable pace, even though I wasn't eating anything. Uh, but what I would do differently next time is drink calories up high because that's what you can do at altitude, drink a lot of calories up high. And then at aid stations, eat more real food throughout the day. Cause mm-hmm. when I was bonky, I also felt like totally empty. Like I, it was a feeling of like, there's nothing in my stomach right now. Right. And so just like having the fiber of the fruit and the fructose and just like the little bit of carbohydrate and sugar that it gave me was critical. And so I would do that at the end also is eat a lot of fruit at the aid stations and, and bring it with me out on the trail in, in lieu of gels. But I had a total of zero gels the entire day. Zero. Oh, wow. Yeah. I ate well, a bunch of Bobo's oat bars. That was what I did in the, the first half of the race. And those were awesome too. Yeah. Those are dense. Yeah. Good. So I guess I'm wondering also about, cause you know, as a spectator, the only times we see you guys are at these aid stations 
And um, that's a that has its own kind of unique thing. And you're you are so internalized at these aid stations, um, and the energy is is different between different uh, groups of crews. But that's really all the kind of gauge that we get on the runners at this race. So I I wonder what it's like. Like, do you look forward to getting to the aid station? Is that how you kind of divide up the race? Is like, this is the next aid station. I can't wait to get there. And then what is it like to see people? Do you, Is it overwhelming to be around people in that sense? Or is it like relieving? And do you go insane in between the aid stations, like waiting for the next one? I mean, it's definitely a mental uh, sort of benchmark that you can sort of use to pull yourself forward. Sometimes it's like, Oh, okay. In an hour, I should be at the next aid station or whatever. Um, but harmony is very, uh, her very strict on the fact that she doesn't want help. You know, it gets overwhelming when there's too many people trying to like all hand me stuff at the same time. And so she, she handles all that stuff and she does a great job of sort of, you know, answering or asking the right questions about what, what do I want to take and making sure that I take my headlamp with me and things like that. Um, but it can be overwhelming, especially these big races when there's a lot of people around cheering. Uh, and also like, you don't want to show your vulnerability in the aid stations, like at that aid station, Chapman Gulch, where you just read the iron far tweet of me puking. I was thinking like, shit, like I am puking right in front of Ryan's crew right now. Like when, (laughs) when, when he comes in, they're going to say, Dylan looked terrible and puked all over the place here. And then Ryan's (laughs) going to have a second wind, you know, but that's this kind of shit you got to think about. And so it's like, it's much better if you can puke on your outside of the aid station. But one, one, uh, I think anecdote, one anecdote about aid stations that I think is important to mention here and something that longtime podcast listeners will appreciate. Uh, they may remember when I had Joe Grant on the podcast. I don't know. It must've been a great episode, great six, episode. Month, six months ago now. And on that podcast, I cornered Joe into committing to pace me at hard rock. And I just want to tell this story and give Joe a little recognition because he's such an awesome dude. So a short time after that podcast aired, Joe called me and he said, Hey man, they've asked me to be the aid station captain at Kroger's canteen, which is the aid station that sits on top of Virginia's pass at 13,000 feet. It's a huge undertaking, a huge responsibility and a huge legendary honor, a legendary aid station, a huge honor. And he just, he said, you know, Hey, you know, like, I know I committed to, to pacing you at the race, but so I wanted to like, you know, check in with you and see, and I said, bro, dude, don't worry about me, man. You must accept this honor. This is something that like you, you have to accept, like, this is a a privilege and a, a huge responsibility, but like you are the perfect person for it. And so it was so special 10 years after he and I ran the last 30 miles together where he was having a tough race, but pulled off an awesome, I think it was sixth place that year 
to go up to the top of Virginia's Pass when it was still light out and it was a brilliant Alpenglow evening. And for all the listeners, the context, you got to look at pictures of this place because it's literally on the razor's edge of a ridge line. Yeah with on top of a scree field where you, you have to scramble up to get there with all of your water and all of your equipment. And it's in the middle of nowhere at what's yeah. the elevation of Virginia's like 13,000, 13,000. So insane. Yeah. So, and it takes, it's a huge effort to put the aid station up and there's a whole crew of volunteers that spend five days shuttling shit up there. And they've got like hot food and everything. And anyway, so the, the the end of the story is just that it was just the one of those goosebumps, brilliant moments in my career that makes me want to burst into tears to like have Joe up there as the aid station captain. Ten years after we, I paced him at the race uh, to you know give me a big hug, feed me a little bit of food and and then send me down the hill instead and the of pictures that I run far got of that are legend. Joe took those pictures too, which those, makes it even and more that is, special. If you look at the, at the post-race recap article on I run far, that's the, the lead image of it because it is so beautiful. And you see Dylan and, and Topher Gaylord, his pacer at the time hiking up with their poles with this incredible sunrise in the background. And then that other picture, which is you from behind with your arms out, just summoning the divine, uh, gazing off into the infinite horizon. It is, I, when I saw that I was out on the town, of course, experiencing some of my own excess. <laughs> and I saw that and got emotional too, just to see how happy you were. And also that's the aid station where they offer the runners a shot of tequila, right? It is. And unfortunately I've totally forgot about it while I was sitting there <laughs> and, uh, I would have, I would have taken it, but, uh, I would have, I would have uh, preemptively solved your bonking problems. I think <laughs> if you had just a little <laughs> bit of lubrication in or there. enhanced my stumbling abilities a short time <laughs> later. Yeah. So cool. So I want to talk about a couple other things. Uh, the first is, the, is pacers. Um, it seems you pick up pacers for the second half of the race. It seems like that's kind of what people do. Um, first of all, what is, what is the role of the pacer generally? And is there a different role at hard rock than in other races? Um, and the other thing I'm interested in is like, do you guys interact at all? Like, does the pacer try to talk to you? Does the pacer tell you what's coming up next? Does the pacer become your therapist or are you guys just kind of silent the whole time? Yeah. What's the psychology of it? Yeah. So I was mostly silent, but I was very happy to have the company of three good friends. Hillary Allen was the first pacer who took me from Grouse Gulch to Uray. Topher Gaylord, a great friend and mentor of mine, uh, took me from Uray to Telluride. And then Tyler Green, fresh off his second place finish at Western States, took me from Telluride to the finish. And, uh, yeah, effectively the role of the pacer is it at hard rock. It's especially important to keep the person on the course because it's just a lot harder to navigate than uh, a typical ultra. And I had no problems with that. Uh, but the pacers were all, uh, were equipped with, you know, GPX files on their phones and watches just to make sure we stayed on the right path and also to look for the reflective markers, along the course. Um, for me, I don't ever, I mean, I'm lucky in that I rarely ever struggle with existential. Why am I doing this? I want to quit. This sucks, whatever. I was pretty much just silent 
And, you know, when there was, but there's a, there's an interesting thing about being silent in another person's company. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they would provide encouragement, but it's not like encouragement that I necessarily needed with the exception of Tyler saying like, you know, focus focus on on what's ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Focus on what's right now and what's ahead, not what's behind you. Uh, and Hillary was also great too, because she had just done the soft rock. So she did the course over three days. So she, she had it fresh in her memory. And so she was great and just like, okay, you're going to come around this corner and then it's going to get steep and then et cetera. Um, so, but yeah, it was, it was definitely really, uh, special to share it with those three in particular. And I'm definitely grateful for their assistance on the day. Because you guys are so, that's another thing that seems as a spectator to be different about this race is you're so alone out yep. there. Yeah. And I can't even imagine what it's like at two in the morning in above tree line in the dark with yeah. your headlamps on and that, and you have this kind of nonverbal camaraderie and that's yeah. got to just be such a, such a special thing to experience. It really is. And also the safety component is, is big too, because f- for example, if I had been further away from the aid station, when I started wobbling and shit, I don't know. I mean, I could have got myself in a pretty weird situation yeah. in the middle of the night. So the safety component is important too. Yeah. Well, don't tell mom about that. (laughs) Um, The other thing that is so to me as an outsider, the thing that makes me second most emotional after just, uh, just seeing you out there is to see the embrace of just the holistic nature of the sport. Um, Like at Western States a few weeks ago, whenever that was, I I turned it on in the morning and watched all the last finishers come in. And whenever we're at a race together, we always go see the last finishers come in. And it is just so beautiful and such a testament to the enduring nature of of humanity. But it really creates this sense of, of community in a way that I've never experienced in any other, certainly not elite level sport. And it seems to be something that's, that's shared amongst the field. You know, these guys who've been doing it for 15 years who have, what was it? A million miles of vertical gain on the hard rock course alone. And then these dudes come in and they're doing dishes in the dish pit when they get in, or they're like serving people food. And just the fact that Francois finishes at whatever time in the morning, and he stands there and waits for you to come in like that would not happen in another sport. Um, It's such a it's such a cool thing to witness. And I wonder if you, I guess, in a general sense, what your thoughts are about that, why it is that way in this sport and maybe not in other sports. And also, if you think that as the sport gains popularity, if that's something that's going to continue, it is hugely popular in Europe. Is that same vibe there in Europe, in the ultra community? Jason, this is why I devote my life to this sport is because of all that shit that you just mentioned. It's just like, it's so special, man. It's so, it really is so special, you know, to have someone like Francois who was out for 22 hours himself, like go home, go to sleep, bro. He's like, no, I'm going to wait a whole (laughs) hour for Dylan to get there. I mean, it's a, it's a hugely, like, I appreciated it. 
I appreciated it a lot. And he's just like, he's such a great champion and family man. And he's more than an athlete. Like he's got his winery and all that stuff. It's he's emblematic of the spirit. Right. And this is why I want to devote my, the next chapter of my life to pushing the sport into the next generation, because I want to preserve this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to your example of Mike Wardian, you know, washing dishes. He, it took him like 36 hours to get through the, the race or 34 hours, something like that. Anyway, I went back to the golden hour and went into the gym to get a cup of coffee. And Mike Wardian is washing the dishes there. <laughs> a legend of the game and like moving sinks around. And anyway, it's, and then, yeah, when you get to the award ceremony, like I mentioned, the final finisher is celebrated as much as Francois mm -hmm. and just the, the, yes, the holistic nature, the 360 degrees of all that stuff where you can have the high performance competition and you, and, but then also the deep sportsmanship and respect and love it's why it's the best sport in the world. And so, yeah, I mean, hard rock is, a perfect uh, sort of example of all those things. And I got to experience all, all of it last week. I wonder if you can um, synthesize some sort of um, takeaway for us mere mortals that will not experience this type of, of depth or perhaps experience it in our own ways. Um, especially with regard to, you know, it's such a big part of this sport is bouncing back and, and not getting caught in the trough of your bunk, um, how you deal with your emotionally, mentally, physically, really dark moments. Um, I wonder if you can, and maybe this is putting you on the spot, but synthesize some sort of lesson that you take away from these hours on the course and apply to your, or attempt to apply to your, your regular everyday life in terms of, you know, what do you do with pain? when you're on the course, how do you, how do you think about the application of that to dealing with your pain slash fill in the blank, whatever, when you're, when you're going through your life? A saying that I like is when it feels like you're going through hell, keep going. And for me, it sort of captures everything I've gone through in the last two and a half years, you know, like, from the time that I got into hard rock in 2018, the following 12 months, my whole life fell apart. Like I was not in a good place, as you know, for a whole year, for a whole year. And I'm sure there's people who are listening right now who are going through something similar right now. And I mean, I think it's just important to, to just keep going, man. It's just like, keep battling. That's the lesson of the sport is sometimes the attitude comes easy. Like we talked about, and you don't have to work on it, but sometimes like life just fucking sucks. And there's not much that you can do about it, except be present with the shittiness. And when you go through hell and you keep going, eventually you're going to get through. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's why the sport is, is a metaphor for, all these ups and downs that we experience as, as human beings. Yeah, that's gorgeous. And it's also such a, a beautiful lesson in, in retrospection, right? Like, um, like that's what we've been doing is looking back on this probably pretty nonverbal 
profound experience and and giving it this retrospective meaning that probably is somewhat different than what it felt like in the moment. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to, in retrospect, be like, oh yeah, you know, go closer to the suffering when it arises and let it have its way with you and, and keep fighting and da, 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 da. And it's such a cool thing to stow away in cognition in hoping that it, it can actually come out in a way that's not retrospective during the moment. I want to kind of wrap things up with another, um, maybe high level as question, which is something that I think a lot about. And I was actually, I thought about it a lot after I saw the Alex Honnold movie. Um, what's that called? Free, free solo. solo. Okay. Yeah. Which is, which is this, you, you have an athletes like Alex Honnold and all sorts of extreme athletes in particular have a very unique familiarity with just incredible intensity. And as a part of your livelihood, you're able to create this fascinating sense of meaning out of pushing yourself to the edge in a way that so few people can really relate to. And I wonder about the come down of that. Um, when, when your baseline to feeling alive and excited and stoked is so very sensational, mm. how do you settle back into the quotidian? And And when you're so accustomed to this degree of sensation chasing do you ever find that other undertakings become sort of bland or are you able to apply the same mentality to your creative and relational and professional endeavors or is that degree of intensity something that you can only really tap into during these two or three or four races a year mm. and to tie that all together like i guess there is some sort of like it seems almost dangerous to bring your baseline <laughs> sensation to feeling excited and alive to this degree of intensity. Yeah. How do you stay grounded in that? And how do you think about your longevity? And we can tie this into the, you know, what comes next question. Well, I mean, you use the word longevity at the end of the question. And this is something that I'm really proud about is that I've been in the sport a long time. I got a lot of miles on the odometer right now. And I am still, you know, I've just kind of proven to myself last weekend that, man, I still got it, you know, and on my day, I can still do it. But, you know, to the, and I, and I hope that remains the case. And I do want to remain competitive for as long as I can, or until my motivation changes. Um, but yes, I mean, th the whole lesson of my personal crisis was that being competitive and having great races and having people pat you on the back, both physically and digitally after an awesome effort is not something that should be providing all of your satisfaction about who you are and where you are in life. And so, you know, I, I've been through that learning experience and if, yes, like when we experience injury or when we experience uh, disappointment or we feel like we've underperformed our fitness level, we've missed an opportunity, it sucks, it's disappointing and it's hard. But I, I think I have gotten to a point now in my life and in my career where I'm able to decouple sort of how I feel about myself from 
how many people are commenting on my Instagram posts or whatever. Yeah. But and, what about the intensity aspect of it? Like right. what it look forward I mean, to for me, I, I was going to get to that with the longevity thing and that I think I've been able to have a longer career because I am good at not chasing the intensity that often. And I have been good about that throughout my career. I think this was my 12th, I think it was my 12th hundred miler, maybe my 13th. So over the course of a 12 year career, that's not a crazy amount. You know, yeah. there's people who do three or four of them a year. And I've always been, I think, good at monitoring and metering how many times I go to the bottom of the well, because that's mm -hmm. not something you can do that often. And when you do, you learn something and you've got to absorb that learning and then, you know, move forward and slowly uh, build towards the next time you access that level of energy because if you press the button too many times as we've seen a lot in our sport you can mm -hmm. get yourself in a, in a tough situation so i i mean yes like it, it can become addicting to chase that level of intensity and to have these powerful experiences that fundamentally change who we are but if you you just can't be greedy and you can't be impatient, which are two things that I struggle with personally. Right, the other day you posted, Oh yeah. Accidentally looking at the UTMB elite start list right, right now. Right, right, right. <laughs> that that's more for, uh, for my own personal, uh, prognostication rather than, Oh, I can't wait yeah. to race these guys. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, dude, I mean, it is a, it's a balance for it's people. Such a, in our it's sport. a natural thing. Yeah. I mean, and I remember the, your first hundred at Leadville, that that night of you were like that was the worst thing i've ever done i'm never doing it again and the next morning you're like i can't wait to do it again and i did the exact same thing the first time i did a 10-day silent retreat i was like that was the worst most desperate thing i've ever experienced and the next day i was like couldn't wait to sign up to do it again and it's such an interesting thing because when we're in the throes of it we don't have that kind of retrospection to to frame it. But then the more you do it, the more you're able to access that that viewpoint in the moment. Um, so so what's what's next? Good question. So I'm going to be going to UTMB, uh, but in a media and fan capacity. I can't wait for the races. Ultra all media. Of them top to bottom. And part of what I really want to do with this next chapter of my life and my career is to help tell the story of the sport and to help the general public understand it a little bit better and to, and to preach the gospel as we've sort of done here in our conversation today and help change the world through trail running. Uh, I'll have updates as to what my responsibilities are going to be during race week and what sort of content we're going to be producing later on, but I will be there. I'm not going to race. I'm signed up for CCC. I'm not going to race my goal. Uh, my next goal competitively, I think what I'm going to do is go to uh, the grand raid of reunion Island diagonal defu oh, no. in October of this year. If that's uh, a long one too, right? It's yeah. It's sort of hard rock ask. Uh, a long, hard hundred, but you know, I think it, I'm set up perfectly. I can take a huge break now. Uh, probably won't start like doing anything resembling training until I get to Chamonix where I'll start messing around in the mountains again. And, uh, and then I won't have to train that much cause I've got the strength built from mm -hmm. hard rock. So it'll be a, it'll be a relatively easy, uh, transition, but that's, uh, how I envision the next few months. Cool. Yeah. I think we got to get the, uh, the 50 mile 
championship in Marin back up and running too. I'm trying, bro. Just going to throw that out there. Well, what a treat to get to unpack in this way. And you're such a hero and such an inspiration to me and to so many others. And it's, yeah, what a, what a gift to be able to, to go deep in a little post-race philosophizing. And, um, you know, you are the fastest American finisher of hard rock ever in either direction. It's crazy, isn't it? Amazing. It's so bizarre. Anyway. So cool. Dude, so that was cool. so fun, bro. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, yeah. What a my pleasure. Thanks for thanks for letting me take the helm here for a minute on the Pillars podcast. <laughs> All right, bro. Well, big hug. Love you so much. Thanks again. Love you too. Okay, that's it for this one, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I hope it wasn't too self-involved. And uh, I hope you learned something from our conversation. I have some links in the show notes to my Strava activity from the race if you want to check it out. I also link to Jason's Instagram profile so you can give him a follow and admire his great photography and beautiful captions. As I said at the beginning, I'll have some exciting updates to share soon. I have some really cool episodes planned in the near future. So stay locked and loaded. We are back full steam ahead and I am so stoked. Talk to you guys very soon. Love you so much. Bye-bye.